The plunge is always scary, but taking it always pays off. So without succumbing to fear, let's dive in. All right, we're back. It's been a while. Quite a while. We're taking, uh, I guess, summer break. Summer break. We've still been having very exciting conversations, though. Yeah, we're just failing to capture them with the microphone. Yeah, exactly. All right, so uh, hopefully we'll have another exciting one. This is going to be an exciting and unique episode of Cold Plunge. What we're going to be doing today is diving deep into the topic of free will and using a speech that I gave uh, in shul this week as the springboard to do so. Um, So it should be a lot of fun. If you're a a consistent listener, you'll love this. It's a a dense conversation, but I think it's going to be great. And if you are a new listener, welcome to the pod. If you like this one, this is going to be dense, then you'll love the rest. So definitely check them out. Check out History of Man. That's a good one. Games. I remember it's all a game. Great. Um, so welcome. We're excited to have you. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to dive into the full speech that I gave in shul. Um, it'll be 10 to 15 minutes where you'll really get the foundation. And then we'll have you know me and Judah break it down um, and, and take it to the next level. So uh, we'll cut away to that now. Enjoy. I remember my first encounter with the notion that I may not have free will. Um, I was in Israel for the year when by no conscious choice of my own, my brain first conjured up this jarring idea. Everything else in the natural world operates in a causal way. If a baseball was flying overhead, it obviously must have been thrown. You know, there's inputs and outputs in this world, actions and consequences. Why should I, a biological organism, my brain made up of connections of neurons and synapses, be any different? You know, I'd heard of the psychological debate of nurture versus nature. So, okay, my behavior could be explained either by my, my nature, my innate characteristics encoded in my genetics, by the nurture, by my experiences that had shaped who I was, or by some you know, confluence of the two, but there's no sub- third category that, that wasn't one of those two that could somehow explain my behavior. At the time, the notion was terrifying. I was pretty sure I stumbled upon some pretty toxic stuff. I had no way to reconcile my worldview with the notion of no or limited free will. I was quite sure that they were incompatible. Uh, and it really uh, genuinely was a crisis for me at the time. Um, and I think growing up in this time, if you're an intellectual or someone who, who's reading, you're going to continue to hear arguments like this one. Um, and so I've taken the time to study it since. Um, and I've been able to recognize that a deterministic worldview is is not necessarily a, a horrible fate. Um, and then, in fact, accepting a, a more limited notion of free will could actually improve our worldviews in certain ways. And that's really going to be my goal in this talk. I'm going to start by quickly summarizing the state of philosophical positions on free will with special care not to trigger in you the involuntary urge to space out. But this actually is instructive. If you do space out while listening to this, notice that also and ask yourself, did I choose to space out? You know, what caused me to space out? I think that that actually, you know, so either way, whether you listen or you don't, it'll be, uh, it'll be good. Um, so first, I want to take a second to define our two core terms, free will and determinism. I think this is key. In regards to free will, what I think we're discussing is, you know, your feeling of what free will is, this intuitive experience of being the conscious author of our lives, like the feeling of choice. And we all know that feeling, and I think it's why we're so passionate that there must be free will. Um, determinism, on the other hand, is the philosophical belief that all events are triggered by prior causes, meaning everything happens in accordance with the rules of cause and effect. Nothing could just happen without a cause. And I think that that's very, very intuitive. There's debate among philosophers whether these, t- these two concepts are compatible or incompatible, meaning can you have free will and determinism coexisting? The incompatibilists, the people that say no, are split into two camps. The people who reject determinism and accept free will, those are called the metaphysical libertarians. They believe that 
they're logically incompatible and that we are all conscious agents who have this metaphysical, non-physical free will. It's something that can't be explained by determinism. It's this will that is not dictated by the rules of cause and effect. Um, and I think this is probably where a lot of uh, you stand. You know, there's just some soul, some me that's not me. Uh, and we'll talk more about this. Um, and on the other side are hard determinists who maintain that determinism is true, so they reject free will. Everything follows the laws of cause and effect, and you are no different. There's a third category of people, these are called the compatibilists, who somehow find ways to reconcile free will and determinism, meaning they accept that things are all cause and effect, and really by, I think, redefining free will, um, you know, find a way to keep it alive. Daniel Dennett, you'll hear in the conversation, um, me and Judah will talk more about, you know, how how you could possibly do this. Um, and maybe this is the, the more intellectually honest, I'm not sure, way to way to describe it. Um, there are, there's a bunch of scientific studies, um, beginning with Benjamin Libet, um, and that have since been replicated several times that, you know, are, show that our conscious perception of free will, you know, may not be what it seems. Um, Libet famously used EEG to show that there's activity in the motor cortex. This is a, basically the, the experiment goes something like this. They put a button in front of a participant, they tell him to tap it, and they tell him to know when he... Uh, made the decision to tap it or later they did it with two buttons and you know the decision and what they found was there was this excitement in the motor cortex that seemed to co- correspond with the decision that happened prior to the the respondents saying that they had made a decision um this uh study has been replicated several times and and you know the time between has been anywhere from 300 seconds to a full seven seconds in a more recent study they were actually predicting um participants decisions and what these studies would indicate is that it seems to be the case that there's a moment where you feel like you have free will where the decision was already made so you actually don't have free will and that there's something inside of you making the decision and the conscious experience of the decision is not the decision-making process. Now, in Shul, I took a good amount of feedback. It seems like an article from The Atlantic recently surfaced um, that was uh, bringing up a study that had been done in 2010 by uh, Aaron Schurger, um that was implying that the noise in the cortex um, may just be these decision-making points. Um, and that they didn't definitively prove that free will didn't exist. I, I'm not trying to claim that they definitively prove. I think that the point is just that we are going to continue to get information from neuroscience that shows that decisions are being made as a result of you know physiological portions of our brain. And as we begin to get evidence like this, I think that, that free will, as we understand it, will continue to come under assault. Um, and I really took you know, the excitement around the Atlantic article is, is just another example of how afraid we really are um, that accepting a limited notion of free will would be destabilizing to our worldview. Um, and I think that the point of my speech is to address that, that you don't need to be afraid and we don't need to latch on to this. And, uh, you know, alternatively, you know, you have quantum mechanics that might show that there's some randomness, which is very interesting. But again, people are now building their worldview around this hope of randomness, which is, again, possible. And the goal of the speech is not to argue that we know definitively that free will is not true, just that, um, it seems to be that way and also that it, it need not be alarming, okay? So I might start by alarming you and then you'll become less alarmed. Um, in a way of further demonstrating the idea, I want to do an experiment that Sam Harris had us do. I think I did this with you guys in Shul, but you could just try it again. Um, I want you to think of a city in your head. Just choose one. Um, and then, you know, I want you to be very conscious of, of how that process get made. There are all the cities that you don't know. You're obviously not free to choose those, right? And then there were only a few that actually even came to mind. How could you explain how those came came to mind? Was that a conscious choice? You know, no, okay, those came up. And then there might have been two that you decided by, but even that decision, you know, how did that decision get made? It, just some kind of inclination or something towards one of the decisions. There's very little of this real, that conscious feeling of authorship being true. Okay, so I think that's the point. Um I'm going to end, and this is really my thesis, saying I'm not entirely convinced of any of the opinions. I wouldn't be shocked by a metaphysical libertarian free will. We find ourselves a unique monkey bouncing around this spinning sphere with no clue how we got here and really very few definitive answers. So why couldn't we be imbued by our metaphysical creator with our own 
metaphysical faculties. I also wouldn't be shocked if determinism uh, was true and we were deterministic like everything else in nature. My point is this. We need not be afraid if our intuitions regarding free will turn out to be wrong. And in fact, accepting a more limited notion of free will could improve our worldviews. Um, so that's going to be the point. Now, wh- why? why? How could I say this? You know, Why is everything we're doing not just a waste if there's no free will? So I... I just have to redefine what I mean when we say we don't have free will. All, all we're saying is that you're almost like this system. You know, you're a, uh, a combination of what you are genetically and your, the way that you've been shaped. And when it comes time to make a choice, your system only has one right answer. There's nothing else that it could choose. Um, so there's no real choice. But still, your system is taking an action and the action can have either positive or negative consequences on your life um your actions still matter you're still capable of experiencing good in this world and bad and your actions will lead you in one of these two directions you're still capable of change and growth um and every input is going to affect your outcomes um the justice system is another area that i I hear people being concerned you know and and me and judah will touch on this later in the conversation but how could you blame someone how could you punish them if they did something bad um, it wasn't by their choice. So yeah, it, it is true. We wouldn't hate them. We wouldn't want to punish them because they deserve it. You know, that kind of idea would be gone. But we would still want to deter crime. We'd still want to rehabilitate criminals. Um, and we'd still want to eliminate criminals that were going to harm us. Um, but we would just do it with that empathy and with the that understanding that we're doing it for society as opposed to, you know, some kind of uh, other way. Um, in terms of forgiving others, you know, I think that a lot of the people that we hold the greatest grudges against are the ones we love the most, um, our friends, our loved ones. And I think that a proper understanding that this is how they are um, and this is how they were made to be and there's no other way for them to be um, will allow you to interact with them in a, in a lot healthier of a way. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, they have this concept in the Torah, I've done everything and deserved everything. Um you know, how could you really take credit when you recognize how extraordinarily lucky you are? You know, we didn't choose our family, our genes, the fact that we have beautiful Torah and the structure, your upbringing, and all of these are who you are. And they're the things that allow you to make the, the quote-unquote choices. Um, and so I think you have a lot more humility. Um, lastly, I think Sachar and Onesh is, is a key point, and this is a thesis of mine in general, um, I think one of my main conceptions. You read in the Torah that God will punish you and, and God will punish the nation, and you might ask, how could he? This is how you are. Um, I don't really see it that way. I, I see the ideas of consequences for sins as natural consequences. So if you're jealous, you're going to be the one who's haunted by your jealousy. We've all been jealous before. It's an, an agonizing experience, and it'll destroy and corrode your relationships. Um, if you steal, you'll be the one who's harmed. You know, you steal once. Oh, it's thrilling. You have to steal again. Now you steal again. Now you don't even want to work anymore. I mean, who who is harmed? And then think of the, the what's happening in society if people do this. Um, if you eat and take a second to appreciate it, you are going to be the one who benefits. Um, if, as a society, we act immorally, will bring destruction upon ourselves, like Sedom and Amora. If you fail to cultivate a positive relationship with God and the universe and instead think that the universe is this fickle and fundamentally evil place, it, it's you or us who will find no peace. Ideas still have the power to be transformational. You could listen to this episode, then say, I want to listen to more episodes, and hopefully this could change you, or you could go to school and it could change you, or you could have a conversation with a loved one and it could change you. All of these are inputs and outputs. We still have the capability to grow together. We still have the chance, or we had on Kippur, to go in, take inventory, and you know, shift. Um, and by doing so, we could create a better lives, but losing free will you know is not going to be destructive so and especially we could do this without guilt you know and accepting that this is how we are and this is what the ride that we're on is i'll end with this first of all for those of you who through no choice of your own have struggled with this notion of free will um, whether it's because you hear about it or now because i made you struggle with it or you had an inclination about this i think that you don't need to be afraid and that by further exploration you could come to a strong worldview i'd recommend sam harris's book on free will it was definitely helpful for me um for those of you who haven't and you know this is just like a whole mumble of stuff that you don't want um then feel free to completely reject it 
But I, I do think that accepting at least that our free will is limited, you know, that thoughts arise in our mind by really no volition of our own, um, has the potential to, to give you a lot of different benefits, and you should at least consider those. Um, so now we're going to return to the episode. You'll hear me and Judah. Um, again, if this is your first podcast, definitely, if you enjoy it, check out the rest of them. This is the densest of our conversations. It, generally, it'll be a little bit more fun. Um, so if you like this, you'll love the rest of them. Um, so thanks for taking the time, and uh, enjoy. Now we're back again. We're back again, and and hopefully the, that speech of yours will uh, prove as uh, or be sufficient as a background coverage on the topics, and we won't have to uh, explain all the basic terminology that we might use. For sure, for sure. So I guess my the way I've been thinking about it, and we have a lot to to go into. For a very long time, I I felt pretty troubled by the concept of having no free will or you know living in a deterministic wor- world or something like that. Um, and I think in the speech, I try to explain why we don't necessarily need to be afraid of that. And to me, that's that's what the thesis of what I said was that I, I have you know that portion where I say I'm not entirely convinced by either. I wouldn't be so shocked if a metaphysical libertarian perspective turned out to be true. Um, all I'm arguing is that I don't think that we need to be afraid, and I think the proper scientific perspective is to be pretty open-minded. Um, you know, in the event that it, that it turns out that that's the case, and it, it seems like it should be that way, also. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Rather than just getting stuck on the surface level of the idea, I think it's very helpful to say. What does this idea bring us to? What benefits does it have? What implications does it have? Maybe it has harm. Uh, and I think when you look at the implications of the idea, whether you think there's free will or not, I think the implications are just beneficial to to, to accept or take a you know take on as a as a framework for yourself. And so I don't I don't think it really matters about the technicalities that much, although they're they're sort of the, the logical structure. Because I think the results are, are beneficial, whichever way you see it. Right, right. So I think that's one thing that surprised me. Maybe it shouldn't have been so surprising is the reaction to to the ideas. Like if you consider that it's a possibility, then that's a, a reason worth panicking. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's everyone's instinct is is to panic in in some way. I remember when when I was first exposed to the idea, I was on the arguing on the other side and like many uh, times I've been convinced of something I was arguing against it uh, I probably came off on the the better side of the argument but I was unsatisfied with my answers and you know you're left uh, sitting with the idea going over in your head and I think uh, it helps a lot with these ideas because they take uh, time to process uh, and then it, it's just a question that keeps nagging at you Right, right. Yeah, that's true. And I guess my initial reaction was also to panic. The question is, um, and this is similar to the Rambam and the More, whether, you know, and he says in the beginning, if you hate this book, then just put it down. There is no need for you to read it at all. Um, whether this is like one of those ideas that you would think would be covered there. Meaning, if you don't resonate with it at all and it seems very disturbing to you, then you don't, you know, and I think I, I say this also at some point, if, if you know you've never had this question then you know you could abandon it you could think of some of the implications and and realize that there are a lot of fa- factors in our lives that are beyond our control um and that therefore we should be grateful and also we should be uh, slower to judge um but beyond that you don't really need to take anything of what i said but if you've had the question you don't need to be afraid of the question and you could kind of lean in towards it and and be hopeful that you'll be able to uh, build some kind of worldview out of it. Yeah, I think you touched on a, on an important difference between our take on free will and the Rambam's. Because our view has implications, I don't know if we would say exactly what, what the Rambam would say, which is, oh, this is just a question, and if you don't have the question, great. If you do have the question, this I'm going to spend this whole book trying to reconcile it with reality just to bring you back to where you were before you had the question. Whereas I, th- I think because we think it has implications that could be beneficial even if you don't have the question 
it might be worth considering because it could bring you to a better place. Yeah, well, that's only if it can be beneficial. And some of these people seem convinced that it, it might not bring them to a better place. And I guess maybe that was a failure on me to communicate. I first had to explain why it was even worth considering, I guess. So there was, wasn't so much time to to talk about everything. So I think let's we've expressed the idea maybe even better than I expressed it in the speech since. So I think that a couple of new topics that we should throw in. Um, I think one is is the way that we're defining the self, right? Because I think when we say free will, we mean that the self has the ability to choose or something like that. And I, I do think that the way that Sam deconstructs free will, he's, he's really targeting what you would intuitively call free will, not as much a compatibilist's view of free will, um, and I think that's why his conversation with Dennett, it's, he doesn't really disagree, but I think he doesn't understand why you you would want to call that other thing free will. Yeah, I, th- I think it very much depends on your view of the self. And I think Sam Harris and, and Dennett have different views of what the self is, and so they have different views of of where they fall in terms of compatibilist or, or non-compatibilist. Because the, the premises are the same, right? They're both accepting determinism. And Sam Harris views the self as just the experiencer. So he says, like, we're a, a passenger in a car. And then it probably views the self as as a, as a whole, as, a, as the self is our body, our mind. Um, and that's probably more of a Western view. And, and Sam Harris's view of the self is very is very Buddhist, obviously. Right, so once you view the self, and, and some people are hitting on this in the class, once you view the self as the entire system, so then, yeah, the self has a choice. It could only make one choice um, if things are deterministic, but it, it at least is its choice. Um, whereas, whereas Sam is saying that's not what you're claiming when you claim free will. You think that the conscious choice is the place where the decision is being made, and that's obviously not tr- not the case. Yeah, so exactly. I think Dennett's argument is perfectly acceptable as long as you differentiate between your intuition on what free will is and what the compatibilist definition of free will is. Right, so just to recap, even though you heard it once in the speech, determinism is the idea that everything is governed by the rules of cause and effect. Um, And there is a debate whether that idea can be compatible or incompatible with free will. Right, so I think on the surface it would seem that it could—it's incompatible if everything is triggered by a prior cause. There's no additional area from where you could have this free will. You know, whatever area it is, even if you called it a soul, it would—it would operate in this deterministic way. Um, so the compatibilists say no, that you can both believe in determinism as Dennett does, and and believe in free will. And the only way really to do that is to redefine free will in a way that, that's different. I think most of the people, without hearing anything, would probably uh, you know, identify more as the metaphysical libertarians where they believe that there is some metaphysical part of their brain that has choice. Yeah, and, and I think that obviously is covered in your speech. We have little reason to believe in. Uh, a lot of people's impulse, uh, you summarize determinism, is to say what about randomness i think we should there there should be an expanded word that accounts for randomness even though i'm not so sure if there's true randomness but it doesn't destroy the idea of determinism even if there's true randomness it still begs the question of of where your uh, libertarian free will is right true um right the the thing that i kept thinking about is everyone seems to want to cling up to this idea that there is this uh, self additional self beyond what you are genetically and beyond what you are uh, as a matter of your experience that gets to make the choice but then what would he base his choice on if not his experience and his genetics who is he He, he's not informed by prior events he doesn't follow any of the laws of the universe so then what does he use to make his decision and why would you prefer that you know, if he, if you could rewind him and the different time he would choose differently, it seems like even less of an honest indication of what you're, of what you are choosing. Whereas if we view you as, maybe I don't mind the compatibilist view, if we view you as, as the entirety of your system, we say anything that your system generated is of its own free volition, it wasn't being forced to do it, is free will. 
and just it's not the conscious feeling of free will like that the the conscious voice that's not necessarily where the decision is being made um but it's still a decision that's true to you yeah i i don't think the compatibilist view is is uh objectionable really i think the reason sam gets frustrated with it is because there are people who seemingly believe in libertarian free will and when they defend it they revert to compatibilist free will and there's like a a logical step that they miss so you'll say ah oh, there, there's no metaphysical you that can make choices and they go oh yeah but my subconscious makes decisions and that's part of who i am and they think they're defending libertarian free will but they're really uh just saying you know falling in the compatibilist camp and i think that's why sam likes to just distance himself even from that to make his argument clear yeah it also seems just more dishonest whereas sam's is more makes it more black and white like okay so now i get to say that we have free will but i don't mean the free will that most people think so i'm really misleading them then it said an interesting thing. He said, what I'm saying is compatible to determinism is not only free will, it's also moral responsibility and a sense of right and wrong and whatever other things. So, it, which Sam is also arguing that we could come to an understanding of those things. He also agrees that those things are compatible. I don't think he thinks you need to say that the word someone has free will in order to say that. We could still understand those concepts. Yeah, you just reminded me of a great line. I think it was in a Dennett Harris podcast where uh, Dennett said to Sam, we're both compatibilists. Yeah. And that's exactly the point you were just making. And I, I think to highlight the similarity between uh, Daniel Dennett's compatibilism and, and Sam Harris's non-compatibilism, it's useful to see what does compatibilism mean. And I think if you look at compatibilism, you still have the question of what's the difference between me and a robot or what's the difference between me and a computer uh, software, whether it's artificial intelligence or not. It's a system that, that has certain outputs and you could view those outputs as choices. And, and once you look at it that way, the similarity to Sam Harris's no free will at all is, is uh, very obvious. Right. Would, would Dennett agree that a computer has free will or he wouldn't? I'm not sure what he would respond to the question, but I think the the ideology uh, would have to say, yes, the the computer is a system, unless you don't say that the computer has a self. But from our perspective, the computer is a system that has outputs, and so that's a choice. Right. And as long as you say that, then humans have free will in the same way that a computer has free will. Which clashes with the intuitive libertarian free will in this. And that really shows the compatibilist and non-compatibilist versus uh, libertarian. Right, the area where they would overlap. Yeah, or just do they believe in determinism? Yeah, so I think I think the argument really comes down to determinism plus randomness. Right. Um, a couple of just housekeeping bits. So we had the, the Atlantic article that had gone around right before I spoke, so that was <laughs> helpful. Um, that published results from Schroeger, I forgot, it, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but that's from 2012, um, where they gave an alternate explanation for the brain activity that was shown prior to um, a decision, meaning it wasn't necessarily that that was before a decision. Um, I sent a few other studies that I don't think that they necessarily uh, debunked, and I also said I don't think anyone's saying um, that it's been proven uh, definitively that free will doesn't exist. Um, but just, I think the, the main point is the more we learn about neuroscience and the more we see that when something's wrong with the brain in a physical way, it influences the decisions. His soul has not changed, you know, so that it's obvious that the decisions are being made neurologically and neurologically is a physical system. It's going to be governed by the rules of determinism. Yeah. So I, I think that's very interesting. Even if you somehow try to hold on to the libertarian view you can't deny that uh the physical reality to to separate ourselves from the metaphysical uh, libertarian free will part the physical reality is going to have an, an influence on the outcomes and so even if that's the case i think the implications of of no free will are still important to consider because yeah there there are cases or every case where the probabilistic model of the outcome is changed by the physical reality which is causal right so even if you maintain and I, th I think i said this in the speech also that there's some amount of free will which i'm not even sure i could understand what that would be anymore um you still have to accept that there's a certain amount of that has been determined already 
Yeah, like let's say, uh, you know, s- s- uh, Charles Whitman has the t- uh, tumor pressing into his amygdala, uh, which, uh, you know, affects his aggression output. And so, okay, let's say he still has free will, but he has a 99.99% chance of, of committing murder and a, a very small chance of not committing murder uh, in his, uh, you know, the probab- probabilistic model of his choices. So still, it's a, you know, you could still see scenarios where you effectively don't have choice. Sure, right. Or, or you know, much less. Your probability is just yeah. poor, right? And, and in some abstract judgment type of way, uh, it's, you, you can't compare him to the person who has a 0% chance of committing murder in his, uh, based on his uh, neurology. Mm-hmm. Right, for sure. Um, okay, so let's, I guess, move into why we don't think that it's uh, devastating and why we think it could actually improve the worldview. Um, so, uh, on a, you know, a lot of it, I guess, we covered, but what, what do you think the main, the main benefits are? Uh, you want to start with the benefits or why it's not devastating? I think why it's not devastating is difficult because we would have to answer questions on why you would have to respond to why it is devastating, which... I, I struggle to come up with. Right. Okay. So why is it beneficial? I think it changes our view of, or it informs our view of ourself versus others. Uh, a huge part of, of how we view our place in the world and society is like some sort of uh, judgment or weighing of scales. Um, and that's, you know, the ego. And when other people seem better than us, we get upset at ourselves when other people seem worse at us, worse than us. Uh, we get upset at them and judge them and, and they're inferior. And we, we should really realize that um, we're all just the product of our environment, including, you know, environment, including both genetics and uh, the environment you were raised in. And there's no uh, better than in some abstract way uh that like assesses your yourself right but i think of anything the judgments are even more poignant meaning it, this is actually who you are and there is nothing else that you could have been and so if you see someone who you perceive as inferior he's actually like uh inferior in in physical ways you know like it's not like he could be doing something else it's like this is literally a bad combination of cells and experience not a combination that we would want to replicate yeah there's definitely still a a ranking uh algorithm that you could run uh, on humanity i'm not taking the far left approach that uh there is no evaluation of of people but i don't i don't think the evaluation should bother us as much because it, it it is as it is it's almost like the the concept of emunah and bitachon, like this is how things are. This is the one truth, um, and that that means you shouldn't get angry at other people. That's just how they are. Right. Um, you should try to change the 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 result of the future to to be best in your favor and best in everyone's favor. But you sh- there's no reason that you should be furious at them, and there's no reason you should be upset at yourself uh, right. for being inferior because that's just the way it is and you, you got to do your best right and even on a societal level i think the whole ideas of laws really come from this kind of free will no free will idea meaning if there were no laws then everyone would would commit crimes it's not that is just the way that we have found people to function we wouldn't be like oh they are so immoral there needs to be the rule that's just the way that that the, these computers work um, you know, and I think all of those things, the way they were able to study humanity using psychology and make broad claims, all of that exists because these are uh, predictable to some extent devices. I mean, the more we learn about humans, the more we're going to be able to predict them, the better we're going to be able to make laws. Um, and we see there was this huge responsibility we have in terms of, of the laws we make and the environment that we create, because the only way we could really influence someone's behavior is through the inputs that they get. And that's the structures that we build. So if, if someone is, is reacting in a way that we don't like, we have to understand that there's something fundamentally wrong with the system and it is going to continue producing this result. There's not them stopping to do whatever it is that they're doing. There's only uh, changing the, the system. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's huge. Uh, our view of justice is really, I mean, it's baked into the definition of the word, but it's like this idea of fairness. Mm-hmm. And when you're a kid, you complain, you know, it's not fair. And adults will tell you life isn't fair. And they probably don't even fully believe it because they still insist on fairness sometimes. But I, th- I think that's a huge message. Reality is just reality. Uh, and only what w- what we do or what reality outputs could change could change the future. And so uh, there's it's pointless to insist on justice or fairness for for criminals or, or punishment or even for heroes whether you know they should be rewarded. We should just view it as how are our actions going to change the world we live in? Right. So laws are, like I said, either they're for deterrent or they're to rehabilitate. There's no hate or malice associated with with them at all. Yeah. And you mentioned that we have some need for retribution. Uh, Yeah, I heard Sam mention it. I don't think it's ideal to have retribution baked into our system just because it reflects poorly on society, I think. But if we need it, it would obviously have to be there for a healthier society. But I think acknowledging it as such uh, would then allow us to phase it out as society becomes more enlightened and doesn't have the need for retribution. So what he means by that is it, it could be proven that people who the person who murdered their child um, actually heal better if that person is killed um, just as a matter of them getting closure. So in that case, it's possible that we, we might you know, have reason to kill the criminal because it does add benefit to a different party and maybe the the good upside on having the criminal alive is really very minimal as it is. We, we can't completely rehabilitate him. It might be a cost on society. It's just adding another thing to the other side of the scale, which, fine, like, we could, then we could consider it and we can make a calculation about the right way to have the laws and, and try to figure out what the way to do it would be. Um, okay, so that's that's on justice. I always think um, that's crazy is is if the whole world is deterministic, then uh, I don't know why I think this is so pre- profound, but then this moment was almost destined to happen, which to me is crazy. I don't understand why the existence of life on planet Earth necessitated the existence of Ernie and Bert speaking into this microphone, but I find it flattering that it that it did. Yeah, I, I guess it's baked into into determinism as in this was determined. Um, and putting aside true randomness, then yeah, this moment had to be, this is the way reality plays out. The only way it plays out, the only way it could play out, Mm. um, which gives every moment, I guess, some sort of importance, maybe just to yourself, but it's definitely, uh, empowering in some way where it's like, this is the moment, uh, that's here. It's part of, it's part of the path. And the future and the past can only be connected by this moment. It's like somehow necessary. So it's kind of cool. Um, so I had that. What was the other one? Oh, so I think people still hear us speaking as if you have free will because we speak about ideas like being able to change ourselves and other people. Um, and I'm not sure how to fully, fully think about that. If you look at it, from the present moving forward, you, it is possible to actually change. It, it wouldn't be change if you knew the whole ending. Um, but, you know, the way I explained it is your actions are still going to have consequences and there are processes that your system could could run. They could hear about it and run because they're ready to run it that could change, you know, what what things are going to happen if it had not run that process. So even like the idea of Teshuvah. Yeah, if you... Uh, take the time and, and go inside and look at your actions and look at their consequences it is possible to for your system now to be changed as a result of this process um but why is that not a contradiction to talking about free will or not talking about free will i think if you look at it from the compatibilist point of view it's definitely not contradictory uh where processes that you know where an algorithm that's constantly running and we have outputs, and sometimes those outputs are right back into ourselves. They're outputs and inputs, and the outputs determine how the system functions. Maybe even change the underlying system itself. Uh, so, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily uh, so contradictory. Uh, and if you go on t- in the in the non-compatibilist camp, 
then you accept this concept of choice as sort of an illusion, which is useful to engage in sometimes uh, to simplify matters. Uh, and we do that all the time. We, we use illusions to, to help us make decisions or as models or whatever they are uh, for simplicity's sake because they're, they're very effective. Right. I think I heard Dennett say that free will is an illusion in the way that money is an illusion. I'm, he might have said that. Um, on a speech I was watching, or he might have said it's not even an illusion in the same way that money is. He said one of those two things. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so then, you know, if you step into in Sapien's world, right. exactly. there, it, free will is just a myth that we accept to help us function better. Right. Um, but not even libertarian free will, really. You just need to use the myth of compatibilist free will. Which may or may not be a myth, but right in the same way that your mailbox on your computer is an illusion, there's not a physical mailbox and that where the, the files live, but it, it's a very useful um, structure to have created. So our mind could have this idea of will. It's just a way of discussing the outputs of our system, um, and the outputs of our system could change. And and right. So why does it feel? Something is happening. Like so, let's talk about that the idea of tishuva again because it's interesting. Because there's an output in your system that is also simultaneously an input, like you said. Um, so how how does that work? That you could have these outputs and then inputs that it could because then the the conscious conversation is also a part of a part of these outputs and inputs to your system that you're you're consistently somehow tweaking itself the the system. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's so crazy. Like in uh, ma mathematics, we'll have it a lot where uh, functions are defined recursively. So they're defined in terms of uh, the moment that came before it. Right. They take the previous number yeah. and you put it back into the function. Yeah. So like if, if uh, a ball is rolling at a foot per second, uh, where is it at 10 seconds? Oh, it's a foot past where it was at nine seconds. Um, and so the nine seconds is sort of feeding into the 10 seconds. And that's what happens with us too. I don't think it's it's so difficult to understand that. Whereas you know every following moment is based on the moment that come came before it, and it's just our algorithm running more and more over time and, and changing. Right. Um, I guess another benefit. So people are also very very worried that uh, things would descend into lawlessness if people accepted that they had no free will. And you know, there's a study cited where they read two articles, and one of them included um, a, a no free will perspective, and one included a free will perspective. And then there was some amount of higher percentage of cheating on the next step of the exam by the people <laughs> that had read that there was no free will. So I think the point of that study, and maybe there'll be more like it, is that free will is a a necessary or useful um, illusion to have um, and that without it, it's not like we're arguing that it could lead or not that it can't, but not that it will lead to a better perspective. It, it could actually lead to a worse worldview. And someone asked after that, he goes, how could that be? You're in this moment where you're going to sin and you're like, well, I don't have free will anyway. So, Yeah, I, I, I don't think that's a fully logical thought process, but it seems one that many people come to. Yeah. So it must be s somewhat consistent with the wiring of our brain like i would would use it as an excuse uh, so i tried to explain that you know sin and sin and uh you know mitzvot and averot are are natural laws of the universe that if you cheat it's only going to end up hurting you at the end we all know what happens after you cheat and then you have to cheat again now you can't work anymore and eventually it leads to a bad place so your system is still going to take into account the negative consequences of sinning and those will still exist and even if you sin a few extra times in the front end and then uh, see the consequences and then uh, stop in the back end. So that was my response. Um, but do you think there is any danger of it, of people using it as an excuse to behave uh, lawlessly? I think the study is very uh, similar to the idea of not asking a question without finishing it it's i think it's a you know, mentioned various places in the torah the rambam obviously got criticism for it right uh and so like when you read that first article on no free will people haven't really considered the meaning of it and for whatever reason the instinct is uh nothing matters i may as well do it i may as well commit the crime or sin or whatever uh but when you sit with the idea more 
flush it out and, and it doesn't have to lead there it can lead there immediately but it doesn't have to and the question is how how much can we rely on other people fleshing out ideas yeah, how capable of are people of coming to the right opinion that's how that's why i brought up the moda in the beginning like maybe for some people this is a useful path to go down the person who already had the question but for the one who didn't um, it's fine for them not to consider going down this path i think the reason that we think that it's important is because at least first of all the arguments are coming into our inboxes um so we're hearing them and then once you're hearing them you have two options you could either be dishonest um intellectually um in order to preserve prior held beliefs or you could do what seems like the better choice and and you know be honest intellectually so in that case it could be for anyone that's going to hear it that way it could be useful for them to be exposed to hearing it spoken about in a way that's not destabilizing um but if we had our choice for people not to hear about it at all it's possible still that that might be the better course and i think the intellectual dishonesty um is actually what leads to the moments that people are scared of so if you're if you hear the idea and you're dishonest about it that means you're, you don't really think it through you didn't spend time you just rejected it but it's still sitting there somewhere in your brain and in the moment of doubt you're when you come up to the test and and you're teetering on the edge of committing a sin it's going to pop into your head oh fuck it it doesn't matter anyway um and so i think that's actually more dangerous once the idea is in your head than fleshing it out and realizing uh that it not only is compatible with your worldview but maybe even uh reinforces it right uh, and then you have more strength in that in that moment of of uh concern right it just comes down to the the whole idea of how much do we want to be sheltered how much can we be sheltered would it be better to be sheltered even if we could be sheltered is it always better to just pursue truth uh, as an obje- objective value um and it's interesting that this is one of those conversations that engenders that kind of, um, you know, emotion around it. Yeah. I have nothing wrong with being sheltered in theory as long as the shelter is transparent. And not transparent as in that you know it's there. Transparent as in it's it's uh, see-through. It's like invisible. And so... You don't know it's there. You don't know it's there. It seems like there's no shelter. And in that case how could I object to it? But the problem is with almost all the shelters. We don't have to go out of our way to, ex- to expose people yeah. to every single idea that might be challenging for them. But when you have an imperfect shelter, which I think is most of the time, and you, and you see the flaws, I think that's way more harmful than having a, a system that actually works and has no inconsistencies. Right. Right, that's what you always say. And to build your worldview on... on truths that are going to ultimately be challenged and then is leaving yourself vulnerable as opposed to just facing the challenges and the amount that you could handle and integrating them and moving on yeah and and if this you can't make the system entirely consistent then at least know the inconsistencies are there so that you don't rest your weight against what seems like a wall but is not and is gonna uh, fall away on you right so once you know where the inconsistencies are where the weaknesses are you could you know, steer around that so that it, it, the the floor doesn't fall out. Right, but what's their argument? The ideas, the arguments about it, free will have been going on for uh, you know hundreds of years. We're not at a place where we're definitively saying that free will is doesn't exist. And for us to build a worldview around the idea that there is no free will when it's possible that there is is also silly. But I don't think it, it, you need to build a worldview around it. I think most of the worldview we have is pretty compatible. You might have to do away with a few things here and there. But once you do that, I think it makes your, the worldview that you already have more powerful. Right. And again, there's that definitive that we have less free will than we think or that the conscious type of free will that we have is not so true or there, there, there are certain definitive things that we're talking about. Yeah. And not only that, everything we know leads to more of a determinist, deterministic type of view. Right, and so to just say, "Oh, I'm not changing until it's conclusive," it's like holding on to your BlackBerry, right? And s- suddenly, the ch- switching cost is going to be much higher when the evidence comes. Because if evidence comes out that there's actually definitively no free will, it's going to have a lot of other implications also, and suddenly you're going to be floored. It's going to be a very hard switch to make, 
Right. And they're going to be, you know, people might be pushed into even more of a stubborn group where, oh, uh, we don't, you know, it happened with evolution where they're not going to accept science and they're going to shun themselves and create this, this right. wall between them and truth. And I think that's a very dangerous position to be put in. Right. And I think our argument has always been that Judaism is particularly, um, has less to be afraid of in regards to science than other religions really very, very few beliefs that are imperative to the to the religion and, and it has a very good track record of being able to adapt and reinterpret things as necessary so there's really a lot less to be afraid of um, and, and on another point so I've been going to the Modea class and you know they're speaking about how the whole point of every uh, law in the Torah has a point it has a, a reason his reasons are less like our reasons that they're good for the individual um, he just thinks more that they're good for society or that they are seeking to abolish idolatry. But the way he portrays the whole religion is as Abraham seeing these idiotic practices. And what doesn't he like about these false practices? Um, just that they're a waste of time so that now people, they're, they're basically false science. People think that the way to make their field grow is to, you know, I don't, I don't know what the different practices are, you know, even if they're not so harmful, but that... Um, disillusioning people from these ridiculous illusions that are not true is the whole p purpose of the religion that it's a religion of someone who realized we shouldn't it's, it sounds like the most pro-science religion in the world at that point then you know the goal is to move closer and closer to what is true about the universe um, and move further away from ridiculous ideas um, and if you, that's your perspective, which is probably not everyone's, but then it's obvious why this would be an important step to take. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this today, where we don't want to be worshiping or, or doing avodazara, right? We don't want to be worshiping garbage or, or fakeness or nothingness. Uh, and and that's, that's Abraham's discovery, which is, uh, you know only only worship truth right exactly and so if that's your worldview then there's no patience for for lies there's no you know in that sam's worldview i i i've been seeing sam more and more as like maimonidean and and more and more as the jewish kind of like you know like that is the natural next step for for what the religion is supposed to be the thing that continues to look around and sees the things that are not true that we're worshiping and removing them and moving us closer to these are the real laws of how you could move towards having better lives and these are the truths about what you should be doing as opposed to you know these practices that actually bring you no closer to truth and no closer to happiness yeah and i think that it happens sometimes that we take an idea as whether they come from misinterpretation of our rabbis or they come from other societies and, and we accept these ideas that are uh, not closer to the truth and end up making our lives worse. Uh, and that's something we definitely have to be careful of. Right. I, I think that's, oh, that's always like if it, in, uh, biblically the fear of uh, assimilation of some sort. I, th I think that's what it could represent. Right. It's yeah. accepting bad ideas from, from your neighbors. For sure. Yeah, the question is when they're from your own heritage, what you do. <laughs> but. A lot of them aren't from your heritage. Like the rabbis have a big disagreement over how you uh, interpret or understand the afterlife. And I think there's such disagreement because the sources are sort of lacking on it. Right. The afterlife I, was is mostly, or at least our, our current understanding of it, is a, a very Christian idea. Right. And so like... That is some sort of avodazarah to accept the the Christian version of of right. heaven and hell, which informs, by the way, what we were talking about previously, our idea of of a, of an abstract justice, right? And it's not so much a, a Jewish idea, right? Now it becomes a part of your your ideas, and it's not helpful because it's just not true. Now you're stuck with this not true idea that's going to inform behaviors that aren't aren't actually helpful because they have no bearing no grounding in the truth and accepting the idea informs like at least you know such some ideas inform uh, your core philosophies 
and then start making their own other ideas. It's like a it's like a tumor that keeps growing. What once the the uh, right cells get in there and start reproducing, that's it. They they're just like a snowball right, running downhill. For the afterlife, now we could explain you know certain certain different philosophical concepts based on that one that are going to have their bearing, and and we have a long uh, puzzle. Um, another piece that people seem to have a problem with was the existence of evil. They had even more of a problem with it if there is no free will. I think they were willing to say that the Nazis are a consequence of man having free will. Like that, okay. But to say that it's determined that there would be Nazis um, seemed crazier to them. Um, That's interesting. I, I, I didn't think of that, but I could see that being a very natural uh, thought because if you have this understanding that everything was put here and then sort of like play was pressed on the on the game and suddenly we started making choices or not making choices uh if we weren't making choices and you have these sort of horrible uh moments in history like the holocaust you i guess your question is why why did god put them here right and I think it goes back to what you were saying before, and, and this is the only way right. reality could be. This is this is it. Like, no matter how many times you rewind and press fast and press play again, this is how it is. There is no a, other way that it could be. Right, I explained the kind of like why is there night or why do animals eat other types of animals? That this is just there is a void that is felt is going to be filled by what we see as evil. And that's just the natural way. And, you know, whether, yeah, and that's just the natural way. There are going to be people that are taking advantage of certain situations and behaving in certain ways. Um, and whether we're moving in a direction where that becomes less and less and, you know, you, you see the project of humanity is good, which, you know, who is the one we just spoke about, McKinsey, the one that was just on Sam's podcast, the one who, uh, him and Pinker, the optimists, McAfee, something, McAfee or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But if you view the trajectory as good, I feel like it's a lot easier. Yeah, you. I mean, I I could still see people questioning why do you have this moment of evil here? Wouldn't the world be better without it? Necessary in the direction that we're moving, though, and which is a good direction, as opposed to, you know, I don't know. It just it, like, or what if the whole thing is moving negatively completely, you know, and, and it ends with an apocalypse, then, <laughs> you know, now it was even less able to be understood. If it's like a product of, of a good journey, then more. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned an apocalypse. I was somehow got thrown into the world of dinosaurs recently uh, only for like a, an hour long subway ride, but like a reading of random articles on dinosaurs. And I was like, it started by. What caused them to go extinct? And I, maybe I should have known that already, but a huge meteor <laughs> hit the world. And like if it hit the earth a second later or something or like a minute later, I don't know, some time frame later, it would have landed in the ocean and wouldn't have been nearly as bad. But it hit a certain place. And so 75% of the species went extinct. All animals above a certain mass size died. But humanity wouldn't have been able to evolve if not for that meteor, probably. Humanity wouldn't be here without it. But if the meteor hits us, we would also die. Right, what happens if and we just get hit by a random meteor? So would the dinosaurs have developed intelligence without the meteor? Who, who right. knows? They What's were like next? pretty dominant. But yeah, anyways, the, the chaos of the meteor caused uh, an accelerated evolution, we think. And that allowed room for primates to develop and, and, and of course, us. So it's crazy to see how out of the moments of chaos comes sometimes the greatest growth. Right, and like we're definitely seeing some kind of growth. I guess growth of of humans. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Obviously, I think we're biased to see it as moving in a positive direction because it's moving towards more of the things that we're pursuing. Yeah, well, at least we're we're uh, capable of pers- of of getting what we we pursue. Right, that would be a, m- a much sadder picture if we knew we wanted things but just couldn't get them, like a baby. Right, right, Big Bird. Is arriving to weigh in on the, the question of free will. Big Bird, do you, do you have anything you want to say? You don't have any opinions? Oh. She said she. Big Bird has evolved out of sign language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she used the little sounds there. 
Um, all right. So I think we uh, we added a, another layer to the discussion. Um, yeah. Well, maybe we'll throw some of the links to some of the conversations that we were talking about. I, I mean, I wouldn't recommend most people listen to the Dennett and, and Sam one, though. I That's like only once you're ready. Uh, I don't know why you would even be interested. Once you're already in the determinist camp? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I kind yeah, of enjoyed yeah. it. It was very... Uh... Yeah, but I still didn't understand why they couldn't agree. Like, they start talking about Tiger Woods at the end, and I I wasn't even following at all what they were saying. Yeah, I think it's... uh, I was trying to touch on this earlier, but Sam Harris just doesn't like any free will because it becomes interchangeable in people's minds, the compatibilist free will and the libertarian free will. Right, he thinks he's using the word to define a different free will and now just causing confusion. And Dennett is sort of trying to hold on to the myth of free will in a more literal way, and he thinks it's useful, and so they're both pretty stubborn in their positions and can't agree on definitions. Yeah, is he being pragmatic? Like, does he is he just saying that because people like the idea of free will, and he, he thinks that it's worth preserving, even if he has to slightly adjust it? Because that's some of what I heard. Yeah, I think he thinks it's better for us to, to hold on to this notion of free will, and Sam thinks it's better for us to shed the notion of free will, because... He thinks it'll lead us into a more Buddhist perspective where the right. ego is less powerful. But both of them agree that the type of free will is, is different than the type of free will that we would think we have. And, and uh, whether yeah. he wants to tear from them their most precious notions like Sam uh, consistently seems like he wants to do, I guess, is the question. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think that debate is so relevant. But in doing it, they sort of lay good groundwork i think i found the first half i don't remember i listened to it a long time ago but i found some of it like very useful in like understanding yeah uh what the argument is and i think it, it ends up informing more than just compatibilist versus sam harris but it, it lays the groundwork for understanding the determinist determinist versus uh non-determinist view yep all right cool um thanks for joining us for another episode of, of- Cold Cold plunge. plunge.